Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Samantha Politics. I'm your host, Samantha Carlin, and thank you so much for coming to tonight's show. This is your source for global news from a feminist lens. We try to highlight the voices of women in foreign policy and national security, and also are a source for global news, as our mission is to really give people an understanding on what's happening beyond the borders of the United States of America, and to really go in depth versus those little news headlines that you get. So today's episode is going to be about the devastating earthquakes that we had in Turkey and Syria. And as usual, we have amazing guests lined up for women, which is very apropos considering today is March 1st, which is the beginning of Women's History Month. So we have unbelievable Middle East feminist experts in the background waiting to come on the show and give us a much deeper understanding of what is going on in the MENA region with regards to these earthquakes. So first, a little bit of background. Zach, if you could bring up that first map. On February 6th of this year, at four in the morning, a devastating 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit Turkey on the border with Syria. Now, this was near, and you can see this on the map, the cities of Nergaji and Gaziantep, which is also home to millions of Syrian refugees. Turkey hosts the largest number of refugees in the world, around 3.5 million Syrians. Now, as if that earthquake wasn't enough, two weeks later, on February 20th, and another earthquake of a 6.3 magnitude also hit, causing additional injuries. Now, I don't, I'm not sure about you, but, uh, you know, I remember when this first happened, they hit the news headlines and it was 600 people dead, 1,000 people dead, 1,500 people dead, 2,000 people dead. And it was like, oh my, like how, how far is this going to go? How high is this death toll going to be? It is just staggering and so incredibly sad that the death count is now topping 50,000 people which for reference is about 16.5 times that of who died in 9-11. So an unbelievable number of people. It is the deadliest earthquake that Turkey has ever seen. Uh, in the past, Turkey experienced a, an earthquake that killed 32,000 people in 1939, and also an earthquake that killed 17,000 people in 1999. Turkey's been hit by 21 earthquakes of magnitude seven or higher since 1900 which has left everybody wondering, why was Turkey not more prepared with the knowledge that Turkey is on an active fault line and regularly experiences devastating earthquakes? What was going on that so many buildings collapsed? Around 100,000 buildings have collapsed during and after this earthquake. That is an astonishing number of people over a million people are homeless and millions more are in need of assistance. Zach, let's take a look at that video of some of the wreckage in Turkey.
So as we can see, I think that second clip is just astonishing of seeing this city that's obviously like this incredibly beautiful city that you can imagine yourself walking around in, and then you just see all the buildings just like completely destroyed. Uh, something else that happened with this earthquake is just so many people trapped under rubble, people hearing, people screaming, not being able to get them out uh, for days, weeks uh, at a time, just really horrific. And then the other thing that we're going to talk about is how difficult it was to get aid to Northwest Syria, which also had a, a significant number of casualties and a lot of damage. Something that happened in Syria is the cities of Aleppo, Latakia, Hama, and Idlib were badly, badly hit, many buildings damaged and collapsed. Aleppo, which had already been ravaged by civil war, was one of the most affected areas where over 4 million people already relied on humanitarian aid. We've also seen a cholera outbreak that began in September get worse because of the destruction of infrastructure, water, and sewage lines by the earthquake. I feel like cholera is one of those diseases that in the Western world we kind of think was, you know, has disappeared. And then we hear about outbreaks like this and in Haiti and realize that, no, it's not gone. It's just the result of having sanitation and infrastructure that prevents this disease from happening in the first place and spreading, but it is completely preventable. Uh, there was also uh, sanctions on Syria, which was seen as contentious when the earthquake happened because, you know, we wanted to move aid to Syria. So the U.S. Treasury Department announced an 180-day exemption on sanctions against Syria uh, for any earthquake relief disaster aid. However, that didn't necessarily hit the areas that Assad does not control, which is what we're going to talk about with our next guest. Syria has been under U.S. sanctions since 1979, when Washington designated Syria a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, they've gotten worse over time, especially when uh, Assad responded to protests in the country by barrel bombing civilians uh, with the cooperation of the Russians. Uh, the Syrian war killed, uh, let's see, a minimum of 580,000 people are estimated to have been killed, 13 million Syrians displaced, and 6.7 million refugees fleeing Syria. So this is already a country that is not doing well, uh, and this has only made it worse. So I want to bring in our next guest to talk a little bit more about Syria. Ruan conducts research and analysis on Syria, her work provides a nuanced understanding of groups engaged in the conflict, including religious motivations and alliances. She's originally from Syria and has experience in comms, political research, and counterterrorism in Syria, Libya, and Tunisia. She's authored more than 25 reports on violent extremist groups and has a master's in global development and peace from Georgetown University. Welcome to the show, Rowan. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Samantha. Um, and it's a pleasure to be with you and your uh, panel and the Happy Women's History uh, sorry, month. Uh, so just to dive in really quickly. So I just want to talk about, you know, where we are right now. What's the UN position in this overall uh, Syria policy and what has happened as of yesterday uh, for the engagement of the Congress, namely the House of Representatives, since you talked about the sanctions. So it's very important to mention that the earthquake hit both government and rebel held parts 
of northern Syria, killing thousands and destroying numerous structures. The situation is particularly troublesome in rebel-controlled areas because rebel territories in northern Syria was already heavily damaged by ongoing war and from hosting more than almost 2 million Syrian displaced um, uh, from other parts of the country. Now, it's... um, Something that I would like to mention that even before the earthquake, the humanitarian groups working in that region had warned that, uh, you know, one border crossing, uh, which is uh, named Bab al-Hawa, is insufficient to the delivery uh, to the delivery of aid to northern Syria. So once the earthquake hit, um, the, 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 the only way to you know, to bring aid to Syrian and in that part of Syria, northern Syria, was through this one crossing, uh, border crossing. The first aid delivery actually um, was uh, via uh, Bab al Hawa, which is this one, and uh, was um, on, oh, sorry, on February uh, 9th, only three days after the, the disaster struck. Um, so now, um, one the, the once the um, the earthquake happened, the United Nations engaged with the president, the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad, to agree temporary to open more two more border crossings into Syria for three months. Um, uh, that left uh, up to like the official numbers that we have. We have thirty-five thousand Syrians dead in Syria. Um, that's the number. Uh, so now, uh, because um, the UN Secretary General uh, Guterres um, and uh, his assistant uh, met with Assad, and they both agreed that two uh, borders opening will elevate um, some kind of um, pressure to 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 cross or to send these aid. So now we are at uh, three border crossings. To uh, for three months to allow uh, humanitarian aid to go uh, from Turkey to Syria. Those two uh, borders uh, were actually, um, uh, you know, were actually on the uh, borders between Syria and Turkey. Now, because you mentioned the sanctions, um, it's worth mentioning that the aid to Syria uh, is complicated somehow by the U.S. sanctions and the ongoing civil war and the variety of logistical issues, as I'd like to say. Um, so it, it, until um, the United States had a position since 2011 to particularly oppose delivering aid through the Assad government. However, um, it, within the first week, as you mentioned, the U.S. Treasury Department issued a six-month sanctions exemption for earthquake aid to Syria. Uh, Though the United States had long uh, maintained that its sanctions do not affect humanitarian aid, which is true. Yeah, yeah, so, but the the thing is, you know, that's that's where it's complicated because you have areas that were hit, hit and they are under the control of Assad and there were other areas that were in northern, northern, northern Syria they are uh, rebel-held uh, territories. So from what I'm understanding, any aid that goes to um, Assad, or excuse me, like any of the major NGOs kind of that are working with Assad, like the Red Crescent, is it's being disseminated by Assad 
And is he withholding any of that aid from those areas that are controlled by the rebels? Or is it just, is it not getting there? Is there just not as much? Like, is he, is he punishing the rebel held areas for being anti-Assad by withholding humanitarian aid? That's a very, very interesting question. Now, it's, it's as I mentioned, it, you can tell that it's a murky situation, right? However, uh, a significant amount of assistance uh, started to flow to the Syrian government, nonetheless, since the earthquake happened and, you know, the, uh, the waiver that the U.S. sanctions had um, many, uh, you know, jets carrying aids, namely Arab countries, landed in Aleppo. Uh, first week of the earthquake, um, like the Saudi Arabia, um, other Arab countries, uh, they actually, um, you know, uh, sent aid. Now, are there kind of, you know, like coordination between uh, Assad-held territories and the rebels? Um, it's sad to, to say that, you know, there were kind of uh, um, initial talks uh, sponsored by the UN to have this kind of like um, aid to go through these kind of, um, they say, like uh, uh, lines between um, two groups or like government and non-government. However, both sides refuse that. And every like it's segregated, whatever goes to Assad is this, you know, distributed to Assad's people, whatever goes to um, the north, northern Syria is uh, distributed to northern Syria. However, the amount of trucks and aid that go to Assad territory is way much than the one to yeah. the um, to the hell, to the rebels held territories. No, so so it sounds like it that is happening, but it's not. It's like it's an unofficial policy. It's kind of under the radar, or it's, it's not happening. It's not happening, and that's where I want to tell you. Like, although it's a very sad and devastating situation, but the earthquake and thousands of people lost their lives, family, the whole families were wiped out, wiped off. Um, it's this is an opportunity for a political solution for Syria because. There were a lot of talk about the politicization of the aid, right? I will only give the aid for my group. These are my group. I'm not going to share with the others. But the certain situation or the current situation cannot sustain. It's not sustainable. So, yes, it's a devastating situation, like three months here for border crossing, six months for like extension for U.S. sanctions to be lifted, but it's not sustainable. That's why I think there is a great opportunity uh, for the U.S. policymakers to lead um, and push regional countries to push for uh, a political settlement based on the UN Security um, Resolution uh, 2254. So you're basically saying that this represents an opportunity for Syria to finally reach some sort of political settlement and end the, you know, the war that's been happening for the last gosh, I don't even know how many years it now. It's been 12 years. 12 yeah, years. I think, I think, I think it gives, um, you know, it gives the current administration a very great opportunity, despite the devastating situation to actually broker, uh, you know, uh, there is a leverage, you know, the foreign policy of United States has been always, you know, the carrot and the stick. I think there is a carrot. I think the regional countries, namely Turkey, I mean, it's, it's known that Southeast Turkey, Anatolia, uh, or Southeast Anatolia uh, is actually a poor region. So mm -hmm. 
and and this like with this um it's not only the two um earthquakes because there are like thousands of um you know like mini earthquakes happened afterwards so that area cannot sustain having refugees and you know turkey by itself with the rise of anti-refugee sentiment they cannot have more Syrians. So two two opportunities here: an opportunity for foreign policy uh, makers, U.S. makers, to like push with the regional countries for a, a settlement, a political settlement. Second, I think there is a very important uh, opportunity for uh, you know uh, UNHCR, the Refugees uh, United Nations uh, Agency to uh, uh, speed up the process of the women and the children that were mostly hit by this earthquake. They are the vulnerable uh, groups to be vetted and to be uh, resettled in the United States and Europe. Uh, it's just like unbearable for them to go to Syria and they are vetted already. So all what we need to do is just like to push the bureaucracy a little bit um, and have some of those, uh, you know, vulnerable groups that have been vetted to be settled in Europe and in the United States. Mm. And what what is, and, and with all Nusra being part of this, how does that play into all this that the U.S. has labeled a terrorist group? That's a very interesting uh, question. So there are towns that were hit in the earthquake, like uh, Salkin, Idlib, uh, Harim. They are under the, um, you know, the designated terrorist group called Al-Nusra. They have their own governance uh, or government. It's called Salvation Government. Um, that's why when I when you when you asked me about like, are there some kind of communication between the Assad and the rebel? Uh, actually, because of the rebels are you know, controlling uh, the main crossing, uh, Assad is using this as an execute saying that this is a terrorist group, we're not gonna, uh, you know, send them any uh, aid. Uh, and also it's the same mm -hmm. thing why the UN has been under scrutiny, because there were no aids going to those towns because those towns are under the uh, control of uh, this terrorist group. So the earthquake really stripped the fact, the ugly face, or like it showed the ugly face that, you know, a lot of people were trying to like just um, confuse that, you know, um, Nusra is an, um, is an acceptable governance body. Um, it showed like, no, it's a terrorist group and we cannot deal with them. And that's why Turkey uh, and the UN actually um, delayed uh, uh, sending specific aid tools and, um, you know, uh, items that are needed for the earthquake because they were not approved. So that's why there was a need for uh, extra two cross borders to open. Thank you, Ron. And last question for you, and then I'll let you go. How can people get aid to those areas that are, you know, in such dire need for aid that are not really being serviced by the Assad government? Yes, I mean there are numerous of uh, NGOs that are that are you know based here in the United States, and a lot of Syrian Americans, mostly doctors and and uh, humanitarians, they go to to uh, you know to these to these uh, border uh, crossing through Turkey. I will name two. Uh, Karam Foundation is one of those uh, NGOs that you can actually donate, and it gives the they have like houses in Turkey, um, and actually as of two weeks ago, they are capable of sending aid to. 
uh, Aleppo within the Assad-held uh, territory. Also, you know, there were some kind of a back, uh, background, uh, I will say, kind of a channels for that. But that's a win. And also SAMS, the Syrian American Medical Association, it's also um, uh, officially and based here in the United States and uh, vetted. Both of them are vetted and they have a whole team on ground providing aid, medical aid, um, um, mental support for the families. As you mentioned, cholera is there, uh, trying to help also Syrians to find new homes, whether in Turkey or outside of Turkey. Thank you so much, Ruan. So as we said, it's the Karim Foundation and the Syrian American Medical Society Foundation. If you're looking to get aid to those hard hit areas that are in North uh, Syria that are not really getting the help that they need. Well, I want to let you go for the night, but I, I really want to thank you so much for giving us that perspective of, you know, thinking about how does the U.S. open up its borders to more Syrian refugees, mainly vetted women and children, and also how do we use the war as kind of, or excuse me, the war as the, the earthquake as a way to motivate uh, Syria to finally come to some sort of political settlement and end this 12 years of death and destruction. Thank you so much for your perspective, for coming on the show, and happy Women's History Month. Happy Women's History Month to you, too. Thank you so much, Ruan. Thank you. All right. Well, that was some amazing commentary on Syria, thinking about, uh, you know, the, the differences in the country in terms of the north of Syria, the rest of the country, Assad-controlled ter territories, uh, Al-Nusra-controlled territories, um, and mainly, you know, it's, it was devastating to see how aid just wasn't getting to Syria in the, the first hours of the quake, uh, or the first days of the quake, especially to those areas uh, in the north that are not in Assad-controlled territory. We're just going to take a brief break to see a video from our sponsor. And Zach, if you could play that video. I took the Women's Leadership Challenge in early 2021. Samantha told me before I started that this could possibly change my life. And you know what? <laughs> I think it might have done. It gave me the very breakthrough I needed. It fulfilled me in so many ways. I find all my senses through this class. So welcomed me just as I was. I believe that we need more women leaders in the world. Women leaders who lead an innovative, creative, courageous ways that are true to who they are, that aren't a manufactured version of what a man would do at the top. So we're gonna do things like finding your purpose, but we're also gonna do things like looking at how do you create institutional change. Your cohort will become your sisters that will support you, elevate, lift you up. I highly recommend that any woman who's looking for a pivot, looking for a boost, feeling imposter syndrome, definitely recommend the Women's Leadership Challenge. It's really been a wonderful, life-changing, empowering experience, and I hope that you will join it as well. So you might recognize that bookshelf behind me uh, in that video. So that is the program that I run outside of hosting Samantha Politics. It is an eight month transformational leadership program. And I am just, I love it. It brings meaning and joy to my life. I just had a cohort graduate yesterday and I was so impressed. 
two women throughout this course in the last eight months have uh, one has has uh, written a book and gotten a book publisher about ESG, environmental, social, and governance uh, on the individual level of investing. Another one is writing a book about regulations and policies and how mothers affect uh, the, the economy and how mothers drive the economy. And she created that plan during the course. Another one quit her job and doubled her income and you know has a new like amazing company. I, I'm just like another one made like an unheard of career jump and I coached her through the interview process to get the job. So I, I just I see so much success and I I just more than anything love helping women who are ethical and wonderful to advance in their careers and to create the change that they want to see in the world. So there is two, there are two cohorts coming up. The DC one is actually full for the, the spring, but fall applications are open. So that one always oversubscribed. So apply soon if you're interested in the in-person DC cohort. And the virtual Women's Leadership Challenge still does have a few spots. So if you're interested in becoming a leader of the future and changing the world and changing your life to make more money and create social impact, check out www.womensleadershipchallenge.com to apply and we'll have a call and see if it's the right fit for you. And now back to our show. So I want to bring in our last guest who wrote a really good opinion piece about how you can help. Uh, I like to end the show on a positive note because I know sometimes it can get really depressing. So I'm excited to bring in Raksha who was born in India and raised in Canada. She's a writer and a former humanitarian aid worker. Her essays and reporting have appeared in Harper's Bazaar, Guernica, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wired, Outside, Vice, Washington Post, The Three Penny Review, The Believer, and more. Welcome to the show, Raksha. Hi, Samantha. Thank you for having me. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that last piece and thinking about like the gendered aspect of disasters mm. and that women and children are, you know, really affected. Is that, you know, could you speak about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that certainly women and children tend to be the most vulnerable um, in these situations. Obviously, men and boys um, are also are also affected. And I think sometimes the emphasis on women and children can result in sort of unequal aid distribution where, you know, a, for example, like a family with four girls ends up getting way more aid from a bunch of different organizations than um, a family of, you know, five boys um, headed by like a single father, for example. So I think mm -hmm. most people would agree, um, you know, an emphasis on women and children as being the most vulnerable is certainly necessary, but it can also lead to unintended consequences. Um, so yeah, we need to, I think we need to be careful about that. But of course, you know, there are, um, in terms of thinking of the kinds of aid that women and girls need. I mean, even during a massive and tragic earthquake, like women and children still need like um, sanitary pads, for example, you know, and that's something that often is, can be forgotten in an emergency. Um, you know, they might still need like bras, you know, that's also something that can be forgotten in an emergency. Obviously um, like women who are, pregnant need like, you know, certain nutrition, um, birth control obviously is like a huge issue that is incredibly important in the aftermath of tragedies when um, there is also a correlation with, um, in certain cases with increased sexual violence. So mm. um, I think it's more, 
um, thinking about the the types of aid that are delivered than than in the distribution of items because sometimes it can result in sort of a a quota or a box checking exercise that doesn't actually end up really helping people. So, you know, in your piece, you kind of talk about how people can help and how, you know, sending over bras as one example or whatever is, isn't actually that helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it, you know, it's, it's, an, it's, it, it was interesting to me because I think it's indicative of a larger problem of thinking that, you know, as Americans or as the Western world, like we know what kind of help people need. Um, whereas civil society organizations are usually the ones who are most able to meet the need. So I'd love to hear, you know, a little bit more about what you said in the article about the mm -hmm. best ways for people to be able to help. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think in, in the aftermath of almost all emergencies, um, especially natural disasters, usually like nine times out of 10, the best way to help is going to be to send cash. Um, you know, and especially in the case of the region we're talking about, um, northern Syria and southern Turkey, I mean, yes, Syria has been obviously devastated by like more than a decade of war, but Turkey and southern Turkey um, is still like a very, like it's a, you know, it's a developed um, and like cosmopolitan country. Um, you know, it's a, it's a higher middle income country. And so, you know, there's no shortage of clothes in the country as a whole, you know, and a lot of clothes are, are made in Turkey these days. So it might be even more direct to send it, to send cash and have clothes or other equipment um, purchased in Turkey and then distributed in the region that's been affected um, versus like, you know, me from America sending my old, old clothes over um, first, you know, you have to think about the shipping costs. And then once it gets to Turkey, it's like a logistical nightmare for aid workers to sort through all the clothes and then match them with needs on the ground. So, yeah, I think it's a bit of, you know, us in the West thinking we know what's best for um, for people affected, um, as you pointed out. And I think it's also, you know, just a, a genuine, if misguided, attempt to help. You know, we look at our closets and think, oh, my gosh, I have all these clothes I'm not using. Um, you know, there's something very nice about being able to send like a tangible item. Um, and, you know, there were other uh, charities um, or I think even the Turkish embassy was asking for donations of medical equipment. So certainly that can all feel um like you're tangibly helping in the aftermath of disaster. But, you know, as a former aid worker and as someone who has worked in that specific region of Southern Turkey and Northern Syria, like I can tell you that these cities are, you know, the, some of the cities affected are like large urban centers that you can compare to, you know, Los Angeles or Miami or whatever. And so, you know, they are going to be able to get the supplies they need, even if the cities themselves are destroyed. Um, from neighboring cities, like there's already existing supply chains um, that people can draw on. And the other reason to send cash is because it helps rebuild the local economy. Like if you send a pallet of clothes, um, then aside from the logistical nightmare and the cost, it's they're also not buying from Turkish stores or from Syrian stores, and then they're not supporting the local economy. Exactly. They're supporting the gap. 
or whatever it is. <laughs> right. right. Um, yeah, that no, that makes that makes total sense. Now, you know, something you know, even my parents were very well-meaning. They're always like, well, I don't know where to give because like, I don't know how the money is being used or is it really going where it's supposed to? Um, how, how can people feel secure in terms of donating that the money is going to be used correctly or is there transparency on that, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough question. And I don't think there is really any way of knowing with a hundred percent certainty exactly what your money is going to be used for because that's also the nature of disaster you know unexpected needs are emerging mm. you know minute by minute you know especially you know since like subsequent earthquake or earthquakes also hit after the first earthquake so you're never going to be able to say like i want to send a hundred dollars to fund birth control for women in this area you know it's going to go into a pot and how that pot right. is distributed um depends and i think should depend really on what emerges um as the sort That's of disaster aftermath continues to unfold but i do think you know there are um as your previous guests talked about like there are organizations who have been working on the ground who are trusted by locals um that you know have experience in the area that i think are are probably a very smart bet so she mentioned a couple um i would also add to that um the white helmets um okay. and um doctors without borders um and the norwegian refugee council um these are organizations that my former colleagues um also you know aid workers in the area from the area um, you know, have told me are, are working in the aftermath of the emergency and, um, you know, are, um, and, and they trust them. And so that's enough for me to trust them. So I think in most cases, the best bet is to reach out to, um, you know, someone, if you know someone who has worked directly in the area, great. If not, like, reach out to, you know, a friend who maybe has like, um, some connection to Turkey or Syria, in this case, and they might not know the answer, but they may might be able to point you towards someone who does. So I think having sort of um, a local vote of confidence um, makes mm -hmm. a big difference. Um, I mean, you mentioned Haiti earlier, like well, you definitely don't want another situation like post-earthquake Haiti where you know, there were very reputable organizations that were working there in the aftermath of the earthquake, but a lot of that money was was wasted. Um, so I think one solution is donating to to local organizations with good reputations. Um, and um, and then, you know, there are also GoFundMes. It's a it's a like, you know, sometimes that can be the best and most direct way to help, um, it, you know, without all the overhead costs of sort of an international aid organization. And so of course that is a bit of a risk too if you don't know the 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 organizer of the GoFundMe, but I think it's worth taking in a situation like this. Yeah, I mean in the as soon as this hit our our intern from this summer Beza um messaged me and she was, you know, they were directing money to actually to Turkish people who worked for organizations that would match. Mm. So she was like send me the money, I will send it to somebody 
they're going to get Google to match it. And I think like in those initial hours, it's just like, how do we get as much money there, like as fast as possible mm -hmm. without bureaucracy? Um, you know, I think it's also now that it's, uh, you know, further, I mean, how many weeks has it been now? It's been almost a month since the mm -hmm. first, the first earthquake. Yeah. There's all of these different feminist groups that have popped up. Um, there's a, if you email info at feministfundforturkey.org, I'll give you a list of feminist organizations that are working on the ground and distributing aid there as well. Uh, and last question for you is, what do you think it's going to take to rebuild, you know, these regions from an aid perspective? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think your previous guest talked about, um, you know, all the political um, sort of complexities of of that region. So I do think you know, political action is, is really, is really key. Like you can't rebuild, uh, fully rebuild while there's still war going on, you know, while there's still civil conflict going on. Um, so I think that's, that's a, a big part of the answer. Um, I also think that, um, you know, in the long term, um, Southern Turkey certainly has like more resources. Um, and I also think, you know, that from my time in the region, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that Southern Turkey will be able to rebuild with the right type of aid. Um, so not just short term humanitarian response, but also longer term development aid to, you know, help get businesses get back on their ground, help, you know, restore like so many institutions that were destroyed, including really important like cultural institutions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, there needs to be some kind of longer term aid um, that is, you know, hopefully really led by um, local citizens and isn't, you know, kind of driven by, you know, what outsiders think the region needs. Because um, sometimes what locals want, you know, that they're really different from what we might think. And it's not our place to judge. Um, it's our place to support if we feel called to do that. Um, I think in the long term, too, if you, you know, if Americans or people in the West are looking to help that region, um, you know, southern Turkey, that area of Turkey is really beautiful. And I think in a few years, like, you know, going on a family vacation there actually could really help restore the economy because so much of that region is dependent on tourism. Um, and so I think some sort of tourism revitalization plan by the Turkish government um, will also be really key um, in that. Um, and then, yeah, the, for, the, for the people whose homes and whose families have been utterly destroyed, like I think both mental health support um, and, um, and also, you know, some kind of ongoing financial support um, and or resettlement plans are, are really key. Um, so yeah, really like a multi-pronged effort. Well, thank you so much, Raksha. I really appreciate you paving the way forward for us in this really just catastrophic and devastating situation. Thank you so much for your input and for coming and happy Women's History Month. Thank you. Same to you. Have a great night, Raksha. Thanks. You too. So I think what's really important here to know is that this area still needs help and that even if as it disappears from the news headlines, it doesn't mean that there aren't millions of people who are homeless, freezing, sexual violence, you know, lack basic supplies, bras, sanitary napkins, uh, and that, like she's saying, the best way to do it is not to 
box up your old coats and try to send them to Syria, but to give money to those local organizations that can then uh, that have the the biggest awareness of what's going on in the region and where the biggest needs are. So just not to end this show on an incredibly depressing note, I do want to show two rescues of animals that occurred in uh, in the earthquake um, devastated region. Zach, can you show that video? So I think what's, you know, I love that video of the puppies and the rubble, and then you see that they're protecting all the kittens. Uh, and then that horse was unearthed after days, I think it was like 12 days under the rubble. And so what I think is a really important to remember in situations like this, that there is also incredible resilience. Uh, there's incredible stories of heroism, of people just digging through the rubble themselves that are standing there to try to get to people, of pulling people out. Uh, incredible stories of resilience, survival, people helping other people, bonding together to overcome trauma, to rebuild. So as, you know, as Ruan was saying, like there's also opportunity in this and a lot of inspirational stories to, to hopefully gain inspiration and resilience from of knowing that if people can go through this and be able to recover from it, we can really get through anything. So that's it for our show tonight. I want to thank our sponsors, Zach Ward of Stream Inspectors. If you're looking for live stream production, whenever I say, hey, Zach, can you put up that video? He's in the background making this show look and sound really good. Also, the Women's Leadership Challenge and Empower Global, which is leadership training and cross-cultural teamwork training. You can check that out at empowerglobal.net. And in terms of places that you can donate, we talked about the White Helmets the Syrian American Medical Society Foundation, the Karam Foundation, K-A-R-A-M. In Turkey, kedev.org.tr. It's a women's organization, K-E-D-V.org.tr. And Kamer, K-A-M-E-R.org. There's also abap, A-H-B-A-P.org. And donate.tpfund.org, which is a uh, which is a consortium. And then if you want a list of feminist organizations or women's organizations, email info at feministfundforturkey.org and they will send you a whole spreadsheet of organizations. It was public, but for safety reasons, it has now been restricted. So you need to email in order to gain access of that list of feminist funds that are working in the area. Lastly, if you liked the show, I encourage you to share it. If you care about what happened in Turkey and in Syria and you want to compel people to donate, to care, to understand what's going on in the world, please share this episode with them and like it, share it. If you are on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please hit that subscribe button. And if you appreciate coverage like this of lifting the voices of women in foreign policy and national security, of covering global politics in an in-depth way, I encourage you to become a Patreon subscriber 
It starts as little as $3 a month and helps us support our uh, production and our advertising costs. So if you want to become a Patreon subscriber, check out www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Samantha Politics, S-A-M-A-N-T-H-R-O Politics, uh, dot politics one, excuse me, patreon.com slash Samantha Politics one. Lastly, as I sign off, I just want to say happy Women's History Month, and it's been a great episode, and we will see you again next time. Thanks a lot, everyone, and have a great night.